I'm going full millennial preacher with the laptop because I didn't get the printer was at Barrington and Barrington's snowed in right now. So there we go. It's good to be with you here today. You few, you brave. Uh, just a call back to the announcements. If you're wondering if Dover's ever going to close for weather, the answer is no. Uh, so you can guarantee we're going to have service. It's great to be with you today. Uh, yeah, my name is Chris Burrows. I'm the pastoral intern here at Free for the multi-site. And um, we are in our second week into a series called Talking with God, um, where we're honing in on the passage that's in uh, Matthew and in Luke uh, that we all know as the Lord's Prayer. And um, last week we took a bit of a uh, over... Sorry, I'm breathing into this. A, uh, a bird's eye view of the passage, uh, talking about prayer a bit more generally um, and about the background information to the prayer, what it means for us, uh, how prayer is accessible to us, how it's relational. And today we're going to uh, break, start breaking down each week, verse by verse, uh, the different clauses in the prayer. All right, what's going on? Is that better? Yeah, okay. You can't hear my breathing. All right. Great. So, wrapped up in this first uh, phrase of the Lord's Prayer, we're talking about our Father, and it harkens in on the idea of identity. And when when we think about identities in our life, uh, they are things that we take on or we inherit that have a relational element to them, right? So, for example, you can have an identity as a spouse, as a husband and a wife, and that puts you in relation to another person. Or as a child, it puts you in relation to a parent. A parent, you have a child, right? There's you're, the identities that we take on, there's a relating aspect to them. And outside of family dynamics, uh, more surface-level identities uh, that we take on communicate who we are or, or how we act may be compared to another person or another group of people. For example, I'm in this political party because I stand for these things versus you over there in that political party and you stand for those things. Or I was born in this country versus this country, and that's part of my identity. I support this sports team versus that. The uh, identity distinguishes us, but it also relates us to other people. They communicate a relationship that we have with another person or a group of people. And in scripture, right at the beginning in Genesis, humanity is given an identity called the Imago Dei, which stands for, uh, which means the image of God. And this identity is given to all humanity, and it means three things for us. It means uh, that as God's image bearers, humanity is distinguished from the other things that God has created distinguishes humanity from the birds and the beasts and the creatures, and also distinguishes humanity from the other created beings like angels. That's the first thing it does. The image of God also in humanity, it intimately ties humanity to God. Humanity was created with the likeness of God, where the physical traits that we have, the eyes, the veins, the ligaments, and the more metaphysical things, consciousness, reason, uh, passion, the ability to create, Uh, these all bear the fingerprints of our creator. It's his image that we bear. And the third thing that the image of God identifies us for is that in the context and the culture of 
ancient Near Eastern society that our Bible was written in, this identity is actually a royal designation. That in summary, it conveys the reality that as God is bringing out his kingdom on the earth, he is doing so through the agency of his image bearers. So God is kingdoming on the earth. He's, it's his reign on the earth, and he's doing that through his royal servants, his image bearers. They bring him, uh, bring his kingdom out, about. And in the Lord's Prayer, we see from the very first line, when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, in very relational terms that distinguishes, gives us an identity that distinguishes, uh, that goes beyond and goes even deeper than just us as image bearers. And so we're going to read uh, the passage again that we read last week, Matthew 6, verses 5 through 14. It reads in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who sees who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. A Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into the temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you, uh, just for the miracle that is that you gather your people together. And Lord, this is just a testament to your faithfulness to us. And and we just thank you for giving us breath today, keeping us safe on the way here. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use uh, this time and your word um, to, to, to grow us, um, to change hearts, Lord, and to ultimately just to give you glory. And so we ask for all that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this image of God as an identifier for humanity. But when believers boldly pray, our Father in heaven, those first words of this prayer we are reminded of a twofold identity that we have as a child and as a sibling. When believers boldly pray, Our Father in heaven, we are reminded that we are children of God. And it's important just to note at the beginning that when we talk about God as Father in Scripture, we all come to, to hearing to the table to Scripture with different experiences, different family histories of what it looked like to have uh, relationships with our fathers. And those can be really good things and those can be really hard experiences as well that can uh, shape how we uh, could see God as father, right? And I don't want to trivialize or minimize that by saying just try not to think about it or try not to think about God that way. But as humanity, as image bearers of God, they're given the opportunity the gift to be able to step into that identity, right? To create, to produce offspring, to nurture children, to be parents, but we know even the best parents on earth do so imperfectly. And the measure that God has, as image bearers, set out for us to be parents and us to be fathers, the, the measure upon which we veered away from that course 
does not reflect back on God, but on us. It doesn't reflect back on the integrity of the template, but on us. It highlights our need for him, our need to teach us how to be fathers. So I just wanted to say that out right at the beginning, because we all come from different places with that. So this famous prayer that gives us a template for how to pray, how Jesus wants us to pray, he says to use the words, Our Father in heaven. And though when Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, we see him talking about God as Father in a way that is new and noteworthy, and we'll talk about that. But the New Testament is not the first time that we see God put himself in this father-son relationship dynamic. In Exodus 4, 22, when uh, Israel's still under bondage, uh, God speaks and he says, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn, let my people go that they may serve me. The people of Israel were a group of descendants of Abraham who, God had, uh, who had been chosen by God to be the people who would witness to the nations. He would be the people through whom God's special presence would dwell in the tabernacle and in the temple and be the people through whom the Messiah would eventually come. That was promised in Genesis 3 to destroy the serpent, destroy death, destroy sin. And this people has so much promise, uh, but before all those other things happen, before the temple, before the tabernacle, they're a people that is enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They're just descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are forgetting they're in a hopeless state and they're forgetting that God that spoke to granddad Abraham or granddad Isaac, right? That's, uh, they're just enslaved in a hopeless place. And that same God who Abraham called out, it says in Genesis 15, Abraham's uh, being spoken to by God, he says, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land. He, he calls people out into something and he hears the cry of his people, Israel, as they're enslaved. He says, thus says Yahweh, you are my son, you are my firstborn, let my people go that they may serve me. He calls Israel out of Egypt into relationship with himself to serve. And then they're brought into that relationship with God and they knew God by name as Yahweh. In Exodus 20, it says, I am the Lord your God, the same template, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They were freed so that they may know God in an astonishing new way, as God's children, as God's firstborn. And this title is the duty and the privilege to be a people that is set apart from the nations, to be holy, and we see that in the Ten Commandments, and to be the very people whose God's special presence was dwelling on the earth, in the tabernacle. And even though God dwelled among Israel, even though God decided to, to, to choose them to be his children, Israel would consistently reject God, just as Adam and Eve rejected God, doing what is right in their own eyes, which is sin, disobeying God, and in the end were punished, they, uh, bringing in a reality where God's presence left the Jewish temple, left the people, and the people were cast out into exile. They were captured by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Because the issue, the true tyrant to be dealt with was not Pharaoh, was not the Canaanites, it wasn't Assyria, Babylon, or eventually Rome, although they are parallels to the true tyrant. 
the true tyrant that was keeping the people of Israel from experiencing true fellowship with God, to step into that reality of sonhood, was the same tyrant that resulted in them being exiled from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve went, were exiled out of the presence of God. This true tyrant to be dealt with was sin. It's mankind's insatiable appetite to elevate themselves selfishly and disobey God sinfully. You know, there was a moment yesterday, it was around 3 p.m., so the, the snow was really coming at that point. And I was, I was uh, looking outside, enjoying it from my favorite place, which is the inside. And <laughs> while I was watching, the wind blew such, in such a way where instead of snow falling, snow was rising from the ground. And so at first, it, I hadn't really ever seen that before. I mean, Chicago, I don't think I saw that. I certainly didn't see that in Alabama. Um, and what was happening was the wind was blowing at such force against the house that the snow that was on the bottom was rising up, you know, that way. But all I saw was just like this, like, like waves crashing on like a, on like a, on a boat window, whatever it's called, uh, snow just rising up. And I was like, what on earth is going on? That's not right. That's not supposed to do that. It has no business going upwards. It's supposed to go down, is what I was thinking. And that was a real issue for me. And in the story of humanity, there is a real issue where humanity, since Eden, is moving in the wrong direction. Instead of moving towards God, obeying Him, we move away from Him and obey ourselves and what we think is right which really hasn't done us any favors, besides maybe granting us fleeting uh, pleasures. And to solve the problem, God sent His Son. It's what we sang about this morning. Bearing the penalty deserved to us for our sin, though He never sinned. Being exiled from the presence of God by dying and being buried. But by defeating death, by resurrecting again ascending into heaven at the right hand of the Father so that those that believe in Jesus can also be restored into relationship with the Father. The problem is not Pharaoh, it's not Rome. It's the power of sin in our lives. This is the tyrant that God sent Jesus to free us from. And those who experience this freedom, this new exodus, as N.T. Wright calls it, are filled with the Holy Spirit just like how the temple was filled. And they, are, uh, they become children of God, sons and daughters of the Father. That they're freed not just to go around aimlessly, not just taken out of Egypt to wander, but taken out of Egypt to be in relationship with God in this life and in the life to come. And this is the hope-filled inheritance for us hope-filled representatives on this earth as we do the kingdom work. Romans 8 talks about this. It says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for this spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And then in Galatians 4, And because we are his children, God sent, his, uh, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but you are God's own child. 
And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Those who believe in Jesus and what he has done, who turn from their sin and live for the Lord instead of for themselves, are filled with the spirit of Jesus. And they are acknowledged just as Jesus is as son of the Father. But it's important to note that as we're invited to pray this, that this, our Father in heaven, by Jesus, this is not a prayer for everyone. Not everyone is a child of God. Everyone has the image of God, but not everyone's a child of God. Because it is the person who repents of their sin that believes that Jesus died for them, rose for them, and receives his Holy Spirit. It is the believer who gets to pray these intimate words with God, Father. And that's, that's an invitation that the world has, that if, if you're here today and you don't believe that Jesus is Lord, that's an invitation to you to come, to, to become a child of God, to have a Father in heaven. And like I was saying last week, how think of rulers of the world, presidents, how they, have, they listen to all sorts of people and all sorts of commanders, but their kids have their special ear, no matter what. The children of the Father have his special ear, and all those that believe in Jesus as Lord have that special ear with God. They are his children. He is their Father. This is why Hebrews 4 uh, says, and it invites us, Let's, let us then draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help uh, in time of need. There is a boldness to being able to, to go to the Father that we have access to, being able to call God Father means that we have been freed of, our, of the true tyrant, sin, and that we have been filled with the Holy Spirit, which makes us God's children, and which gives us the confidence to talk with Him, to bring anything before Him, to be real with God. And so, to the believer that's here today, what situation, what undealt with sin, what person in your life that you just harbor anger for or a situation that is just always on your mind, whatever you're experiencing, you're able to bring that before the Father. And not just to bring it to Him, to just talk to Him and not hear anything back, but to receive mercy, to find grace. And to the non-believer, to say our Father means that we have believed that Jesus died for us and that we've been freed from our sin. Will you have the boldness to call out to God, to ask for forgiveness, to confess that you will live a life for God? If we can pray to God, Father, as Jesus has taught us to, then we can boldly approach him, knowing that he has freed us from our sin. And when believers boldly pray, our Father, we are also reminded that we are siblings of Jesus. We're not just children, but that makes us siblings of, we've got a big brother now in Jesus. It says in Hebrews 2 that God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus through his suffering a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones that he makes holy 
those that believe in God, have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Jesus is our brother. That's pretty cool. We don't talk about that a lot, but he's our big brother. And he's good at it. He's a good big brother. Becoming fellow children of the Father makes us brothers and sisters with Jesus, makes us co-heirs, co-siblings, and we share in the same inheritance as Jesus. This And this sibling reality that we have, this identity, has real implications for how we live right now. And I reference this book a lot in this series because it's really cool. uh, This N.T. Wright, The Lord and His Prayer, I recommend getting it. It's really short and it's really good. But he he asks these questions about Jesus and says, what was going on in Jesus' life when he called God Father and taught his followers to do so too? What did it mean for Jesus himself that he called God Father? father. And in this country, you know, we live in a society where it's encouraged to go out beyond where you started and to, to, to find your way, right? Um, the Amish boy can end up as a DJ. Uh, an 80s cyborg assassin can end up the governor of California. There's all sorts of things that you can do with your life. But not everyone gets those same opportunities, and that's true. But versus the first century world, the, you know, the world's a bit more of our oyster here. Whereas uh, in that day, the career that you were likely to step in was the career that your parent had. And you didn't go to trade school for that. You would learn by watching. When you in- encounter problems, you would overcome them by, what did my parent do? How did they solve that problem? and implementing that for yourself. The way that Jesus lived, the job career that he came to fulfill, it said that he was constantly in the business of implementing whatever the Father had for him to do. When he would act, it was because that was what the Father willed to happen. When he would speak, it was to say the things that the Father had given him to say. And when he went to the cross, it was to fulfill the redemption plan that the Father had sent him to accomplish. And this language isn't just fanciful, metaphorical language that sounds nice, but in John, it's chock full of verses that capture this reality that Jesus is doing this because the Father has told him. He's speaking because the Father has told him to. John 5, 19 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. John 5.43 says, I have come in my Father's name. And John 14, awesome chapter of the Scripture, says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is Jesus talking. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the, uh, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. As a true apprentice, as a true son, Jesus' only concern in this life was to live according to the Father's will and his plan. And it is out of this obedience that we learn how to be children of God. We look to our big brother Jesus to see how he did it. In fact, in John 20, Jesus actually makes that really explicit for us. He gives us that same commission that he had. It says, 
Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's pretty explicit, right? And so to ask those questions again from N.T. Wright, what was going on in Jesus' life when he called God Father and taught his followers to do so too? It meant going to the places where the lost were and to share the good news of the kingdom of God in word and in deed. To go to where the lost are and to share the word of God, the kingdom of God in word and deed. And if we can pray the words, our Father, because we're his children, we've received the Holy Spirit, that means we need to be living a life as a true son, as a true daughter, like Jesus. So Jesus went to where the lost were. He went to where uh, there were needs, both physical and spiritual, to the widow, the orphan, the sick, also the temple, and to the tax collector. You know, when I started my internship here in last March, I remember I was, I was sitting up in the office with Jamie, and he, he, he brought me through a brief history of Dover. And it was just, it was really cool to see, uh, not Dover, the city itself, uh, but Dover, uh, uh, Dover Be Free. And uh, tell me how, th- when this church first planted, it was based out of the desire to, for there to be a gospel witness in this city. Plain and simple as that, to be a gospel witness in the city of Dover. And I'd say in this, you know, in this transition, in this revisioning, I imagine that's, it's this, the same heartbeat of the church to be a gospel witness in this city. And so that's the, kind of the bedrock that, that we start to think about this question. How do we live a life like a son? How do we live a like, life like the daughter who's trying to fulfill what the Father has put on our hearts to be a gospel witness here? And so we need to do what Jesus did, not coming for the healthy, but coming for the lost. And as a good shepherd knows each of their sheep, we need to know the people that we're here to serve. If we can pray to God, Father, that means we need to be living like true sons and daughters, living like Jesus. So, do you know the people of this town? Do you know this town's sheep, the lost? Do you spend time with people that don't know Jesus every week? And not, knowing, not only knowing where the lost are, but knowing them in such a way that you know what they need. Obviously, they need to hear the gospel, right? But do you know this physical and spiritual needs across this town? What people struggle with, what they need each and every day. Not just reading a Gospel Coalition article, Christianity Today, that says this is what non-believers are like, but, but going into society, going into culture and its people, drawing near to the people in this town in such a way that outside of this church to know who they are and what they need. Because that's what we see in Jesus. He went to where the lost are. If they're lost... <laughs> They're probably not going to find their way. (laughs) They're lost sheep. They're not going to stumble into one Washington Street, right? That's why they need the shepherd. 
The fact of the matter is, if we can pray to God, Father, that means we need to be living our lives like the Son. And to close today, a little little history um, about Benedictine monks. Yeah, medieval monks. I thought I bet you thought I was going to talk about rats again, right? <laughs> no, this time. So there was a time in history when those in search of an encounter with God, in search of the divine, would go on pilgrimages. And these, so these pilgrims would journey really far away from their homes without the provisions and the resources that they would need to complete the journey to get to where they're going. And so along the, pilgrim, uh, along the pilgrimage, the pilgrim would be dependent on the hospitality of those that could offer a meal along the way that could serve them and a place to lay, they, uh, lay their head. And the Benedictine monk was one of whom the pilgrim would be dependent on in hospitality. Without the hope or the expectation of payment in return, they would serve the weary, weather-ravaged traveler as if they were serving Christ themselves, himself. But in order for the monk to truly be able to serve the people that came along the way, to offer hospitality, they would need to be rooted and localized in a place. In fact, there were monks called the, the Girovags, I think, who, instead of being rooted in a place, would go off traveling all the time, and they were sort of, you know, the, other, the Benedictine monks didn't like them because how are they going to serve the people if no one knows where they are, if they're just off, off randomly, right? The reason uh, is that stability is required, the rootedness, for these Benedictine monks to commune with God and with others so that they would, the pilgrims would know where they are so that they could be served by the monks. So yeah, they were tactically rooted themselves in a place so that they would encounter those who had need and they were ready to serve when the moment came. So for the most part, the lost and the needy, both spiritually and physically in our world, will not be stumbling in here, as I said, but so we need to be tactically rooted and ready to serve by means uh, actually being rooted in this community, right? We, we do good things that we commit to and we're rooted in. We, we go to Bible studies and we do prayer groups and this is awesome. We shouldn't stop in by any means, but are we committing each week? Are we rooting ourselves to be around people that don't know Jesus, so that as they come along, we can serve as the monks served. That we could share the gospel in word, in deed, to serve as if we're serving Jesus. And it's, it's not super complicated, it's just become a regular somewhere. Pick a coffee shop, pick a bar, pick a gym, pick a restaurant that you're just going to, each week, you're going to hunker down there at least one time a week and get to know the people that come in, the people that cross your paths, learn names, get to know who the lost actually are in this town. And so this is, this is the challenge. This is the prayer for this week, is to ask, Father, where can I commit to being each week so that I can be around people that don't know you? That's it. That's the, that's the challenge I have for you today. It's just that simple prayer. Father, who is it, where is it that I need to be each week to be around people that 
need to hear about you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you that you don't uh, leave us on our own to figure out what it means to be obedient to you, but you give the example of your son. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us in a powerful way to minister to the people in this town, and that, Holy Spirit, you would prompt our hearts and show us the people and the places that we need to go to truly be a light for you in this community. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.